Well, I just want to offer a few words of kind of uh, extended welcome and some kind of orient orienting words as we begin together. And I want to uh, elaborate or underscore the welcome that we offered earlier in the community hall by really saying that um, everyone, all of you, whoever you are, you're fully welcome here. Whatever your shape or size, whatever your color or gender or culture or sexual orientation or any other category in which you may find yourself belonging and sometimes feeling left out. The Buddha was actually something of a social revolutionary. He lived in a time in which there was a very strict uh, caste system. And his Sangha, as we began to create together in the circle a few hours ago, the Buddha's Sangha was open to everyone. And it may be difficult in a way for us to understand from who we are and where we are now just how radical a move that was. So it's in that spirit and in the understanding that in Buddhist teaching it is that felt sense of separation, of not being a part of, of being left out, of what we see in the world as extending, expanding chasms of division and divisiveness, that that kind of suffering was in some way our deepest suffering. Losing our connection to each other, to the world, and also to ourselves. So in the same way that I, and I think I can speak for Andrea, we want to really wholeheartedly, fully warm-heartedly welcome all of you, whoever you are, just as you are here. We also want, or I also want to invite you to extend that same kind of generous welcoming to all parts of yourself. I heard a lot in the check-ins this uh, sense of wanting to have time for quiet, to drop in, to settle in. And it's so true that in the world in which most of us are engaged, we're moving so fast. Just the sheer intensity and velocity of how fast we're moving and how much is coming at us causes it to be the case for most of us, many of us, that we end up pushing aside, not being able to tend to, to attend or pay attention to many aspects of ourselves, and particularly those parts of ourselves that may feel 
difficult or clawing or annoying or ouch, you know. So this is a place where the invitation to you is to invite all of those parts of yourself here. Everything, everything, every part of you gets to be included. I, I keep having this thought <laughs> about just how strange it is <laughs> to be a human being. And so all of that strangeness, all of our oddity, all of our quirks and peculiarities, all of that gets invited into this cauldron, you know, this journey, this five-day journey that we have together, which is ultimately a way in which we have an opportunity to quiet, to slow down, to drop in, and to reconnect, to fully embody our humanness. This is not a path of transcendence. We have the opportunity here to really drop in, to be here, to be ourselves fully. This is an enormous uh, gift that each of you has given to yourself just by showing up, whatever happens the next five days. I sometimes think that we as humans, one way to think about it is that we live in these two concurrent planes of reality. One is the horizontal plane, which we might think of as like the surface of the water. And most of us in our regular life are kind of moving very fast across the surface, you know, because we all have somewhere really important to get to. We have things to do, we have accomplishments, we have, you know how it goes. And it's good. It's good to have things to do. It's good to accomplish stuff. I like getting stuff done myself. But you may have noticed that if we only are moving across the surface, that first of all, it's endless. Have you noticed that? There's no end. There's always more to do. But maybe more importantly, if we only are moving in the horizontal dimension, we begin to feel this deep kind of hunger. And I think in some ways that that hunger is the hunger for what I would describe as a vertical dimension. Many of you described this in your language in the check-in. You talked about wanting to deepen your practice. And a, and a retreat, a journey that we're on together is this wide open invitation for you to drop in, to drop vertically, to move into <laughs> the bottomless now. And this is a rare opportunity in our lives, in the lives where we spend so much time uh, at high speed. <laughs> And it's really in that vertical drop, in that deepening, that we can begin to reconnect deeply to ourselves 
and we can begin to find a sense of real nourishment, real meaning, real satisfaction. Some of you know that there are these sometimes described as being two kinds of time, which are chronos and kairos. And they, they're related to these two dimensions. So chronos is like chronological. I think of it as tick-tock time. You know, it's the time in which you're watching your watch or you're wishing you had more time or you don't have enough time or you... I promise that at some point during the retreat, you may also have a moment where you're thinking, why won't they ring that damn bell? Why is the time going so slow? Right? And that recognition actually begins to give us uh, an introduction to the truth of Kairos. Kairos is more of a fluid kind of time when we begin to notice that time is not actually consistent. Kairos is that sense of deep time. It's the time of moving into the moment and the, the, the opportunity we have as we do that is this amazing surprise that we discover when we drop in, the moment opens. The moment opens and we have an opportunity to discover something about ourselves and about how we are as human beings all of us, individually and collectively, that reveals itself to us. So we have that opportunity here. So I just want to offer a few tips for how to uh, navigate that transition because I think many of us have been moving in high-speed, horizontal, chronological time and uh, sometimes there can be of a bit of a bumpy entry as we shift modes. So um, I'll, I'll have more to say, but the simple version of my three key tips for how to uh, engage in the practice are be curious, be kind, and let go of your expectations. Now these are easy to say and I understand not so easy to do. So being curious is about whether this is your first retreat and there are many of you who have the benefit of coming for the first time so you're not loaded up with past experience that may be telling you what should and shouldn't happen. Or some of you have sat many, many retreats. But either way, the invitation is to bring forward your beginner's mind. Beginner's mind is a mind that is open, that is interested, and that is completely willing to be surprised. It's the mind that doesn't say yes, no, good, bad. It's the mind that says, what is that? What might I find out about this moment besides whether I like it or not that would help open this moment to me. Can we bring that kind of, it's almost like a childlike curiosity and wonder to whatever it is that's happening, whether it's an extraordinarily peaceful or blissful moment, or it's a really exhausted or sad or difficult moment. 
Whatever that moment is, can you meet it with this quality of beginner's mind? One of the ways to think about this uh, curiosity is to begin to do this vertical drop of moving past our story about what's happening into the immediacy, the felt sense of what's here. And we'll be giving more instruction about that process uh, as we go. As we do that, it's really important, this second tip to uh, be kind, to meet whatever is arising with a quality of tenderness. It doesn't mean you have to like what's happening. And it also doesn't mean you have to be nice. And it doesn't mean you have to smile when you don't feel like it. Allowing yourself to be right where you are is the ultimate kindness. So please uh, be gentle with yourselves as you go, as uh, the moments begin to unfold for you. Letting go of expectations. <laughs> this is a bit of a um, paradoxical piece here because you cannot let go of your expectations. If you have expectations, you already have them. So letting go in some strange way is not actually something that you can do. But you can notice the expectations that you have. And some of them you may know already. Like you may have the expectation that this is supposed to be a very quiet and peaceful time and it's really relaxing. <laughs> well, maybe not. Or you might have the expectation that this is going to be really hard and it's maybe, maybe not. There will be expectations, if you're lucky, that you didn't even know you had until you bump right into them <laughs> somewhere in the next number of days. And the idea when that happens is not to say, oh, bad for having an expectation, but like, oh, wow, I didn't know that I thought I was supposed to be this way or retreat was supposed to be this way or the teachers were supposed to be this way. You get to find out. And in that clear seeing, a letting go happens. In that clear seeing, you're freed from the belief that you had that you just thought it was true. When you can't see it, you just think that's the way it is. When you see it clearly, it begins to release its grip. Because here's the deal. You have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea how it's supposed to go. And you have no idea what's going to happen. And it turns out that's really good news. <laughs> because life itself and we, we strange, peculiar, quirky human beings, we are so much more than we think. We are so much more than our stories about who we are and what we're supposed to be doing and what other people are supposed to be doing. And this is 
one of the best ways to discover that. Not as an idea, not as somebody sitting in front of the room telling you, but for you to discover for yourself just how true that is. An enormous freedom in having that discovered for you. So I'll end with a, there's a beautiful quote that I think captures what I'm pointing to here. It comes from uh, Dogen Zenji, who was a 13th century Japanese monk, teacher, scholar, poet. And he said it this way. He said, when you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean where no land is in sight and you view the four directions. So this is kind of like going on retreat. You're taking this journey, you're going out someplace, you don't know where you are, in the middle of the ocean, and you look around, you view the four directions. He says, the ocean looks circular and it does not look any other way. But, he says, the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. All things are like this. So we have an opportunity to sail out together on this journey. It's actually a better way to say it is we have an opportunity to sail in (laughs) and to drop deeply below the surface of the ocean and to discover, to be willing to be surprised and discover the vast whatever it is that you're going to discover that uh, lies just beneath the surface. So uh, please remember, be curious, be kind, and uh, let go of whatever expectations you know you have or those that you may run into as you go. Thank you. At this point, we have a, a kind of a, a, almost a little ritual that we go through around entering into this journey, this uh, entry into the now that Pam was speaking about. And this is uh, acknowledging that we are in this community, in this container together, and exploring what, what is the container we want to create First, I think we all hope for a container of safety in which this journey feels like something we can undertake. And this exploration of safety in community is um, related to the Buddha's teaching on refuge We um, think of the word refuge, and it does mean a place of safety. 
And yet if we start thinking about where and how we typically find safety or look for safety in our regular lives, you know, where do we where do we place our sense of safety? Where do we hang our hat? Where do we say this is this is what's safe? And often it's related to having a particular job or maybe a relationship or maybe a place to live, money to buy things with, and so we you know we place our we, we think we're safe or we place our sense of safety in material things often. And yet, even a, a very brief reflection will reveal how tenuous that kind of safety is. Because things change. The truth of our world is that things are unreliable. They're impermanent, they're changing, and much of the time they're out of control. These truths are, I think, why we want safety. <laughs> you know, we, we look for safety in an unreliable world, and yet we, we go for safety in places that are we try to land in safety on those very things that are unreliable those very places that are unreliable and so if we do have a sense of security it can be it can be hard medicine to recognize that that feeling of security is Often, I mean, if you're if you're basing security on uh, material things or on status or on relationship, that the that the sense of security is actually based on a misperception, a misattribution of this thing being reliable as a place of safety, and so that's hard. That's hard medicine, and yet. Many people, I think, do come to the Dharma because they have recognized that the way or the place that they have counted on safety was not, was not so reliable. Certainly that is how I came to the practice, this deep recognition that the, the ways in which I thought I could be happy, the, the things I was trying to do to find happiness in the world were just not reliable. And you know, the Buddha talked about in his own life this question of does someone actually know a way? Is there actually a way to find happiness in this world? A true kind of safety, a true kind of refuge. And that's really, that was his journey. Is there, real, is there a true refuge? Is there a true place of safety? And in his um, practice and what he ended up teaching is that yes, there is a place of refuge. There is a safety, there is a, a supreme security, but it is not where we think it is. It actually in some ways lies with aligning ourselves with the truth that things are impermanent, unreliable, 
out of control. And so this, uh, this is where the traditional three Buddhist refuges come in, in a way that um, we, we can explore a direction that the Buddha pointed us in towards a different kind of safety, not the safety of having things, of controlling things, but the safety of aligning ourselves with the way things actually are. This aligning ourselves with the way things actually are is really the mind of balance, the mind of equanimity, the mind that is able to meet and not be pushed around by whatever is happening in our lives. So this stability, this standing in the center of experience with a heart that is open, unconstricted, and yet understanding, understanding the nature of what it is to be a human being this heart that both understands the the nature of life as impermanent and unreliable and also deeply recognizes the uh, open heart that stays open and doesn't constrict around those truths this is so often where we we get caught when we meet the truth of unreliable, impermanent, often fear, anxiety, anger, confusion, wanting things to be another way. Those emotional reactions are a, a, a kind of our response to that. And there's the possibility of meeting those same truths with a heart that is unconstricted can meet it with kindness, with compassion, with joy when there is joy in the world, with balance of mind, with generosity. And so this journey of ours essentially, this journey towards a deeper kind of happiness takes us from the habitual reactions we have towards the way things are, towards a heart that can be more fluid, more responsive, responsive rather than reactive to the way things are. So the traditional three Buddhist refuges are refuge in the Buddha, refuge in the Dharma, and refuge in the Sangha. I think of these really as not separate refuges, but as three facets of 
a deeper refuge. Refuge in the Buddha. The word Buddha basically means awake. And so while sometimes people talk about refuge in the Buddha as being taking refuge in the human being who actually lived 2,600 years ago, for me it feels more resonant to take refuge in uh, the, the fact that the Buddha, first of all, was a human being and that he found this a possibility for freedom, this possibility of a true refuge, this possibility of alignment with the truth instead of fighting the truth, the possibility of a balanced heart in the midst of being human. And so the with the word Buddha meaning awake and the Buddha being a human being, part of the pointing there to me is that we are all human beings and we all have this capacity to be awake. We can take refuge in that capacity that we have as human beings. For me, this is not a, um, an intellectual exercise. At times on retreat, I've felt or seen that there have been times where it's like, I feel like I cannot just, it's like I'm, I'm lost. I feel like I'm swamped. I feel like I'm swirling in chaos. And, and yet in that very recognition, at one point I was, I was so uh, stuck and felt like I cannot even be mindful of anything. And yet I took a step and felt my foot on the ground. And it's like, wow, this being does this awake stuff. It's just doing it. It's part of my inherent nature to have this capacity. And with that, there was, a, there was a sense of relaxation. It wasn't like, oh, I don't have to figure out how to do this. This is part of being human. That was, a, that was a, a taking refuge in that capacity to be awake. We all have this capacity and in moments we find it. The second refuge, the refuge in the Dharma. There are two sides to this one too, I see, at least two sides. One is that the Dharma can be understood as what the Buddha taught, the practices, the teachings, the exploration of our hearts and minds through the, uh, the teachings that he offered. And this can also be a, a deep place to land at times if it's challenging in the practice. I've also seen that, um, you know, it's like all I need to do is take the next step, take the next step, be aware in the next step, have another breath and be aware of that. Just engage with the practices. Like that's that's this r- the responsibility here on this retreat. That's what we we explore, engaging with the teachings, engaging with the practices. What those teachings point to, the Dharma, the the teachings as the Dharma point to, is some um, opening to what is actually happening in the present moment. 
That is this, this now that Pam talked about. That is what we are doing. We are, tr- we are exploring the possibility of opening to what is actually happening in this human being, in this human experience. We are opening to that. What's actually happening here? Dropping below our ideas, our beliefs, our expectations, our agendas. What's actually going on here? This body is sitting here and breathing and hearing and it's phenomenal what's going on here. It's, we take it for granted so much. That's quite an amazing process that's unfolding here. And so much of how we relate to what's happening is through our ideas, our beliefs, our expectations. We don't actually drop into what's actually happening here. And so this is, this is the, what the teachings point to. So what the Buddha described as the practices and the teachings point to what's actually going on below the, the conscious surface chatter of the mind, what's actually happening here and now. And that's another meaning of dharma, the truth of what's actually happening right now. To me, this is, this is really the true refuge when we can begin to enter into that deep time that Pam was talking about. When we enter into what's actually going on in this human experience. We know it from the inside. I sometimes use the language, we learn how to be with our experience. We learn about being with our experience, not thinking about it, not living through our ideas, but actually landing in the, the, the actual lived experience in this moment. And that's another meaning for Dharma, the truth of what is actually happening right now. And the refuge that the heart really opens to is the capacity to land and be with what's happening here without reactivity, without pushing it away, without trying to hold on to it, but entering into this like endless streaming now. recognizing the truth of what's happening in this moment. It's not easy to see. It's not easy to meet. There's so many layers in our minds, so many layers of, of beliefs and concepts and views that we begin to, it's like peeling, peeling away the layers as we go inward. We peel away the layers of our ideas and views and we land in a deeper, a deeper time. And then we see there's more layers and more layers and more layers. And the, the journey of opening to that, meeting that, without our habitual ways of reacting to, oh, there's something uncomfortable here, let me figure out how to get rid of it. 
the question of curiosity. Oh, there's something uncomfortable here? What's this? Oh, there's something really pleasant here? What's this? So that the curiosity really informs that exploration and supports us in aligning ourselves with what's actually happening right now. And the third refuge, the Sangha, traditionally this has meant the refuge in the um, those who have um, understood the teachings. Sometimes Gil Fronstall, my colleague, uh, talks about the Dharma is passed from warm hand to warm hand. That it's a connection, it's a human connection. That's the Sangha. The transmission, the lineage, the, the teachings have come down from the Buddha through this community. And we're connected to this community through time, through the 2,600 years of warm hand to warm hand, this teaching has been passed from one person to another. So that's a connection to the lineage. And then there's also the connection to this community here and now. It's so much easier to do this work in community in so many ways. I remember on some retreats where I would feel like I just can't do this anymore and I would open my eyes and I'd see somebody doing walking meditation and I'd think, wow, if they can do it, I can do it. So we can take refuge. This is, this is another beautiful support for us in our practice and in entering into the here and now. It's not always easy. It's not always easy. And so the community, I think you will, you will find the community is a beautiful support. And the community sometimes is a way that we get caught too. You know, we, we, uh, you know, we want it to be perfectly silent in the meditation hall, and somebody sneezes, or and this is, if you can just remember, remember, this is the community. You know, this is these are human beings together. There are going to be noises. There's going to be rustlings. There's going to be sneezes, and and. That's just part of being in community. Sometimes when I would hear my neighbor sneeze or cough, you know, most often I, I discovered that I was mostly annoyed, not so much when, when um, I was really clearly mindful, because if I'm really present and I hear a sound, it's just like, oh, hearing. But when I wasn't mindful, a person had taken me out of some daydream. This is great. <laughs> when I began to recognize, oh, actually the little rustlings and noise are helping me wake up. That was supportive. And so we, one way to look at these three aspects of the refuge are, I think of the, the Buddha, the refuge in the Buddha is refuge in our capacity to awaken. The refuge in the Dharma is what we wake up to. The truth of what's actually happening. And the refuge in the Sangha is the support of the community that helps us 
to wake up. Another aspect of um, the support of the community together is the, uh, the precepts entering into agreement, basically agreement that we will have a non-harming container that we live in together. And so we explore the five basic precepts here. They're stated in ways that sound a lot often like the Ten Commandments, <laughs> you know, thou shalt not. And yet, to me, they are, they are, the way they're framed, they are framed as training rules. The word in Pali is sikapadang, which is tra- path of training. And we are asked to explore the path of training of refraining from killing living beings to explore the path of training, of refraining from taking that which is not given, to refrain from, um, in the retreat setting, to refrain from intentional sexual activity, in non-retreat setting, to refrain from uh, causing harm through sexuality, to refrain from false speech, and to refrain from intoxicants, which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So the grounding of these training practices is non-harming. That we are exploring, creating a container of safety for each other. They're not what I would call what we usually call moralistic in the way that they are pointing to right and wrong, but they are more pointing practically speaking to, do you want to live a life that moves you in the direction of freedom from suffering? Then these precepts are going to help you get there. That if you want to move in the direction of freeing yourself from suffering internally, externally. That refraining from creating suffering externally will serve you. Because as we refrain from harming others, our minds become much more at ease. Our minds are uh, recognizing, you know, if, if, if you do something that creates harm to another, your mind, your mind goes into agitation often. And so the, uh, the precepts are supports, not only for others, but for ourselves to move in this direction of being able to settle into the now. When we do things that harm others, the mind is often, you know, it, it can be going back and thinking about it. What did I do? What should I have done? Well, they really made me do that, and so I'm not really to blame. And the mind just goes kind of nuts. Not able to settle into the present moment. And so these are, these are practical. I think of these, these uh, precepts as very practical. And each one, each of these precepts, not only do we explore... Um, they're refraining from causing some kind of harm, so that the non-harming side of it. 
but each one also is very naturally connected to a beautiful, wholesome quality. And so refraining from killing, refraining from killing in a retreat setting, even from killing little creatures, uh, mosquitoes or insects. This refraining from killing begins to cultivate the quality of compassion. That as we actively refrain from harming, our hearts beginning begin to soften. And, you know, this one, you know, it, it may seem like a, um, almost a throwaway in some ways. I mean, the, the, the not killing mosquitoes can be challenging, but, but you know, the, the not, killing, not killing larger beings, not killing human beings, you know. If even everybody on the planet, if everybody on the planet even agreed from this moment forward, we will not kill other human beings. You know, what a different world this would be. And so appreciate your commitment to that precept, even in the form of refraining from killing human beings. Refraining from taking what's not given. We respect the property of others, and this cultivates contentment. Refraining from sexual activity. This, um, on retreat, we refrain from intentional sexual activity. And this is really to honor our time here together that we are directing all of our energy towards the practice. Sexual energy is a potent force. There's a lot of energy that way. And it can sometimes leak out, especially on retreat. You know, we're not talking and... Uh, for those of you who've not been on retreat before, you might find um, yourself getting very interested in somebody. You know, the, there's a, something that's called a vipassana romance, and you, uh, you, you just get entranced just with the way somebody walks or puts on their shoes or picks up their plate for the meal. It's, 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 a, it's a well-known phenomenon, so if it happens to you, you are in good company. Uh, I had one, my my first long retreat, and I uh, I went through this long, it was over the course of two weeks, it was, uh, I went through this long process of falling in love with this person, and then meeting his brother, all in my mind, meeting his brother, falling in love with his brother, having to break up with him, <laughs> It was like insane. This is, this is, this is, this happens, you know, this. And so we explore keeping this energy to ourselves. So if you find you are, you know, drawn to somebody, um, you know, try to refrain from behaving in any way that you might, uh, uh, um, than you would with just anybody else. Like, like, don't put your shoes next to theirs or, you know, um, sit next to them at the meals all the time. Or, you know, just if you find it, just see if you can contain that, contain that energy. Explore what it is, how it feels, what goes on in the mind around it. It can be helpful on retreat here. And um, you may notice, those of you new to retreat, um, may notice that people, once we really enter into the silence, that people are not 
necessarily making eye contact with you. We don't have a firm rule about that here on retreat, but it's generally helpful actually to, um, you know, eye contact is a very powerful force. And you'll see at the end of retreat actually how strong it is. But, um, and so if you, if, you keep your, if you keep your gaze down, it really supports you going inward. It also begins to, you begin to recognize just how much you, you try to go out to get some kind of confirmation. Am I okay? Do you like me? You know, through meeting people's eyes. I remember on my very first silent retreat how uncomfortable it was for me that I couldn't somehow find out from people. Do you like me? Am I okay? Is this okay? Just seeing how much of my self-worth was reliant on other people's views, other people's opinions, somehow needing something from other people. So it's a, it's a, it's a practice that we can explore here to you know, just keep your eyes averted. We don't have to you know, avoid eye contact altogether, but um, you know, to, to not search out people to look at them to not consciously try to make eye contact with people. You know, if you're looking across the room, if you're looking at me, I mean, we don't have to like be like this all the time. Um, but so if you're, if you know, if you're having a meal and you're looking across the room and you happen to catch somebody's eye, you know, that's okay. But, you know, don't go up in front of somebody and then intentionally, you know, try to make, to make eye contact with them. Allowing, it's essentially allowing people their own space to do their own work, to do their own inward journey. The refraining from harm through sexuality, I feel, cultivates a kind of integrity of heart. Refraining from false speech here on retreat, that means noble silence, where basically we uh, are in silence. Following this evening, we are in silence together. We have choreographed this center so that we pretty much don't have to speak. There are maybe times, in particular, uh, in the kitchen doing your, your yogi jobs or um, you know, if you need to talk to the managers for some reason, uh, there may be times that you actually need to speak, and that's fine. So noble silence means silence except for functional speech when it's necessary. And so, you know, if uh, if you're in the kitchen and you um, want to ask the uh, the kitchen mentor where the lettuce is found, you know, you don't have to go to elaborate gestures or write a note or anything. You can just ask her, where is the lettuce? <laughs> that's functional speech. And this cultivates truthfulness. The fifth precept is a precept to refrain from intoxicants. And this, the purpose of this is to, cl- to cultivate clarity. Intoxicants by their nature tend to cloud the mind, dull our senses. And so we explore what does it mean to let go of recreational drugs and alcohol during this retreat? And I would include letting go of social media in this, 
as well, because that's kind of intoxicant, you know. We could put that under rights, under, uh, you know, refraining from speech and noble silence, but there's a kind, can be a kind of an addictive quality to social media, so we can think about that as also refraining from intoxicants. If you do take um, prescription medication, that please do not stop taking your prescription medication on this retreat. That's, that's not what this is referring to. So this cultivates a clarity of mind. So we'll explore the, 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 the uh, ritual around this is that we chant the refuges together in the Pali language. And we'll do this in call and response because some of you may not be familiar with this. So we'll do the, the refuges um, in Pali. And so I'll chant a few words at a time and you respond. And then the precepts we'll do together in English. And again, that will be call and response. I'll say the, the English and then you can respond. That will be not chanted, but just spoken. And if you wish, you can put your hands together in this way. Namo tasa. Bhagavato. Arahato. Sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa. Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, Namo Tassa, Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, Buddhang. Saranang Gachami. The second line I'll do all together. Dhammang Saranang Gachami. Sangang Saranang Gachami. Dutiampi. Buddhang saranang gachami. Dutiampi. Dhammang saranang gachami. Dutiampi. Sangang saranang gachami. Tatiampi Buddhang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Dhammang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Sangang Saranang Gachami I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training 
to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the training to refrain from intentional sexual activity. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicants which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. May this ethical conduct lead to the highest fruits of liberation. Thank you for entering into this container together for practice, for silence, for deeply going inwards. We'll sit for a few minutes together, just maybe about 10 minutes to close the evening. And so just allowing yourself to find a posture that feels balanced, as comfortable as possible in this moment. And relaxing the body. Sometimes I find it interesting to explore dropping in a request, not trying to do anything, but just seeing is the mind and body willing to respond to the request. May the body relax. Just drop that request in. May the body relax. See if there's a little response, some way in which the body knows how to relax. May the body relax. As we relax the body, it supports our mind to settle a little bit. We can also explore what it means to relax the mind. Gill sometimes suggests a way into this. If you think about your brain as if it were a muscle, see if you can relax your brain. Relaxing the body, relaxing the mind. And then exploring, what does it mean to be here in this human body, to be with this human body? The physicality of the body sitting here, the uprightness of the body, contact points. your hips, your hands, your feet, 
Maybe noticing that hearing is also happening. This too, just a part of being human. within this body, perhaps also connecting to the experience of breathing. A simple experience so close at hand, so human to breathe. Exploring perhaps what it means to just receive breathing. The body breathes. And we can recognize a simple in-breath. Like we are receiving that in-breath, a simple out-breath being received. And yet not needing to focus on the breath. And even as we receive the breathing Even as you receive a breath, you're also already hearing the sound of my voice. Hearing sounds outside. Maybe feeling this breath in the larger container of the body. Relax and receive the breath. Exploring what it means to allow what's already happening to not be resisted or held on to. That kind, kindness Pam was speaking about. 